If you would, uh, let's pray together. Father, you are indeed sovereign over all things. You're sovereign over us. You're sovereign over the grave, sovereign over pain, over the, the powers and principalities even of this world. God, you are Lord. You have all authority in heaven and earth. We pray that as we come this morning, we would see you as you are, God, and that we would worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are continuing our series in Mark this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22. Now, Now, let me just say... A couple things to begin about this text. Uh, Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 22 uh, is actually uh, a small portion of a much bigger text. Uh, the, the technical term for it would be a pericope. It's a grouping of texts, a grouping of stories or, or verses that all go together and serve a, a common purpose and theme, and we are not going to be looking at all of them. This one actually covers five stories, five stories talking about the same theme, uh, and that theme is the beginning and growing opposition towards Jesus in his ministry. Uh, and that opposition comes primarily from the scribes and the Pharisees, from religious folk. Uh, but we're only going to be looking at the first three of those stories. Uh, And so in one sense, you could group all five stories together into one sermon. In another sense, you could separate all five stories into individual sermons. Uh, And we're going to be working with three. Uh, It just seemed to make sense to me. If it doesn't make sense to you, I'm I'm okay with that. Um, But but those are the ones that we're going to be be looking at this morning. And so there are three stories. Jesus heals a paralytic. Jesus calls Levi to be a disciple. And then Jesus has a conversation about fasting uh, with some Pharisees. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, go ahead and stand with me. And and, and, uh, we're going to read this text. We're going to read Mark 2, 1 through 22. And I should have had my Bible pulled up, but that wins. All right. Uh, And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, 
perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take your bed up, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, or call not the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch will tear away from the new. Uh, The patch will tear away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skin, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. May you may be seated. Uh, if, you, if you couldn't tell by the, by the title of the sermon, A New Hope, um, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, of, of a sci-fi fan. Um, and so uh, I just want to let you know, here's how we're going to approach this. Uh, I, I like uh, science fiction a lot, and I especially like things about time travel. So um, if you've seen Back to the Future, um, then you know how amazing uh, it is. You, you know uh, how, how just perfect at least the first movie was. Um, and, and it's a great movie. And, and Back to the Future handles time travel a little like this. Time travel is a straight line. And when you break out of that line, you create a new straight line and and things change. But for better or for worse, it's a straight line. And I love Back to the Future, but I also love uh, Doctor Who. Um, And so, Whovians are passionate. This is interesting. Um, But I I do. And, And Doctor Who doesn't approach time in a linear way. In fact, there's this great little bit where the doctor is talking to another character, and he says, a lot of people think that time is a linear, uh, is a linear progression of cause and effect, when really it's just a giant, weebly, ball of weebly, wobbly, timey, wimey stuff. 
right? That's, that's how he describes time. And so the point is that when you watch back to the future, everything makes sense in a linear way. Its chronology is, is very important. The timeline is very important. But when you watch Doctor Who, they do all sorts of things that if you're thinking in a linear way, you're going to go, that can't possibly work. But they don't care because it's weebly wobbly and it's more about telling a story and making a point than fixing the timeline. Um, and so uh, Mark does that a little bit. Uh, the, the stories are not all collected in, and told in the order in which they occurred, but rather for the point of making um, theological and, and, and personal uh, application and, 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 and points, he clumps groups of text together. He clumps stories together. And likewise, throughout this sermon, I'm not going to go from story to story. And we'll, we'll be kind of hopping back and forth. We'll be looking at this in sort of a weebly-wobbly, timey-wimey uh, sort of way. And so uh, just keep that in mind if, if, if you're, you're wondering, uh, well, where, where are we now? Why did we skip to that story? But at first, we are going to look at the three stories one at a time. And the first story is the healing of the paralytic, right? And so we have to first realize what's going on here. Uh, the, the chapter begins, and Jesus has reper- returned home to Capernaum. So event- at some point in his ministry, in his life, he's moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. He's here, uh, and this is where he's, he's set up shop. He's, he's home, uh, but... As he's gone out and he's taught and he's done ministry, something's happened. People have seen and heard that Jesus is amazing, that his teaching is, is worth hearing. You've got to hear this new teacher. He's, he's done the conference circuit. And so, so everyone knows who he is. He's been book touring and, and he's been um, doing performing miracles and wonders, and people are excited about this guy, Jesus. You have to come check him out. And so now he's not just... That guy, Jesus, whose dad is a carpenter, he's a great teacher worth following. And so people are coming, and crowds are coming. And there, there's crowds here to look at and, and see and marvel at the teaching of Jesus. Uh, but, but as you know, um, having a large crowd was not Jesus' goal. Never was. And it's because he knew this, that it's easy to just be a part of a crowd. Um, and so a great way to, to illustrate this is, is to talk about Batman. Yes, we're talking about Batman. Lots of people like Batman. Lots of people like Batman. Uh, this is more amens than I've heard in a long time. Um, <laughs> Lots of people love Batman. You can tell by the, the box office success of those movies. Or, or even, let's just expand it back and say comic books. People love uh, the Avengers movies. And, and they sold out. And there are these great crowds. And all of them say, yes, I love the Avengers. And I love comic strips. And I, and, and I love these things. And they talk about it. You know, there are those people. But when you probe in deeper and you ask them maybe some origin questions or maybe a little bit more uh, source material questions. They have no idea what you're talking about. So they're the crowds, right? They're those people. And then there's David Calvert. (laughs) Right? Devoted disciple (laughs) to all things comics. And so if you if you talk to David, you can ask him anything. 
And it's remarkable, his encyclopedic knowledge of, of, of comics and, and, and all things nerd. And um, he knows. He's actually quite pleased right now. I don't, I don't know if I could have said anything nicer about David this morning. Uh, but he knows. And, and so, so there are crowds. And they're going because there's hype. And then there are people who study and want to know. And, and it's very easy in our culture to be a part of this crowd that likes Jesus. Believe it or not, Jesus is still more popular than anti-Jesus in our country. People love the concept of Jesus. Uh, if, if Jesus were, were running, if there was a popularity contest, if there was a poll, of, do you like Jesus? The numbers would still be overwhelmingly, yes, I like Jesus. Well, tell me about Jesus. Well, Jesus preached peace and love, and um, he's really nice. He had a nice lamb collection, and he let children come. They don't know who Jesus is. Well, what about the time that he turned over tables? Jesus did that? That, that doesn't sound like Jesus. And they, but they love, people like Jesus. They follow him. They wear t-shirts. They, they put bumper stickers on their cars. And they're great crowds. And it's easy to get swept up in that. Because by and large as a culture, especially in the South, we're culturally, we're, we're culturally Christian. That's the norm. Oh, you're a Christian? Oh, that's great. So am I. So is that guy. There's nothing special about that. But you're in the crowd. There's another group of people here. So there's the the crowd, but there's also, uh, as we see, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, there are the scribes of the Pharisees, really, but we'll we'll lump them in together because I want to really briefly say something about the Pharisees. It's not often that you're going to hear somebody from the pulpit sort of stand up for the Pharisees, um, but... But let's be honest about the Pharisees. They were not horrible guys, right? Like, they, they weren't just evil, mean, just constantly. Yes, Jesus has a lot of bad things to say about them. Many of them are, were hypocrites, uh, but some of them were good. We have accounts of Pharisees who followed Jesus. We have accounts of Pharisees who came and warned Jesus that, that they were coming for him. Who were the Pharisees? They were... One of four groups, sects, within Judaism at the time. And so there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. Right? And so if you, if you could make any analogy to today, the Pharisees were the conservatives. They, they believed the scriptures. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, they believed in miracles. They believed in the sovereignty of God over all things. The Sadducees, on the other hand, if you could make a connection, they were more liberal. They didn't affirm supernatural occurrences like the resurrection of the body or miracles. They were much less concerned with those things. And then there were the Essenes. And the Essenes are kind of like um, they're kind of a monastic movement. They thought, all right, these things are good, but God has called us to be separate. And so they, they pulled back, and they were in caves, and, and they lived uh, amongst them. So, so now, let's, let's just take brief inventory. We've got the Pharisees who affirm the authority of Scripture and want to be obedient to God. 
and believe that God supernaturally superintends over all creation and that miracles can happen and that there will be bodily resurrection. And, and then there are the Sadducees who don't. Who is Jesus more like? Well, the Pharisees. And then there are the Essenes who believe we have to pull away from culture, but the Pharisees didn't do that. The Pharisees lived among the people. They walked among the people. They were pious among the people. They didn't say that the way to go was to live in caves or in, in you know, to, to pull yourself away from culture, but rather to be in it and to engage it. Well, who is Jesus more like? The Pharisees. Like, That's a good thing, right? We would affirm that. We, don't, we shouldn't find the nearest cave. And, and live in it with the rest of our buddies. And that's not how we should live. And then there were the zealots. And the zealots believed that there needed to be an, an overthrow of the, the powers that be right now. And that they needed to establish the physical kingdom of Israel in that day. And here's the thing is they believed they could do it. And so if you, if you wanted to, to maybe make a theological connection, for those of you who are aware of these terms, it's a very post-millennial sort of view of life. We can make this kingdom happen. We can fulfill the promises of God. But the Pharisees didn't believe that. The Pharisees were waiting for Messiah. They knew that if there was to be any hope, it would come from Messiah. And so here's what you need to hear. The Pharisees were trying to be good, faithful people who loved the word of God and who were obedient to the word of God. And that's important because each one of us would say that of ourselves. We want to be good and faithful people who are believers in the word of God, who trust that God is sovereign over all things, who believe that there's a day coming when God will resurrect the dead, when he will make all things new. And, and we want to be pious people. We want to be obedient to God. And so you should not look at the Pharisees with contempt. You should look at them and honestly be reminded to, to check yourselves. So these Pharisees come, and they're not all bad people. They're, they're well-intentioned folks who have, in their well-intention, added laws to the law that God has given. In order to do what? To protect themselves from sin. Right? And they, they've, they've devoted themselves to knowing the word. And that's very important. So the Pharisees, the scribes, they're here. There's another character set here. There's another group of people here. And, and that, that's the paralytic and the people who carried the, the, the paralytic. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about them and their faithfulness in a little bit. And then the fourth character is Jesus. Of course, Jesus is the main character he is the main character and so jesus comes and now here we have a man who's been paralyzed um, and we don't know why but he needs to get to jesus and this man believes and these people who are carrying him believe that if they just get to jesus he can be healed and what happens they get to where jesus is and the crowds are in the way and and, and i just want to make a brief aside here as well so often, 
in the book of Mark and in the Gospels. There are people who are desperately seeking after Jesus. There are faithful people seeking after Jesus. And the crowds are in the way. More often than not, the crowds aren't a good thing. They're in the way of who Jesus is looking to serve. And to so, so we've got the paralytic here. But you remember there's a woman with the bleeding and she needed to get to Jesus. But, but the crowds were in the way. And there was Zacchaeus who wanted to see Jesus and believed and needed to see Jesus. But the crowds were in the way. So he, he had to climb the tree. And there was Jairus whose daughter, right, had died and he needed to get to Jesus. And who's in the way? The crowds. Look, this isn't anti-mega church. This isn't any of that, but you've got to understand and you've got to make sure that in your walk, you're not just getting sort of caught behind the crowds or being that crowd. But that you're the faithful one seeking after Jesus. And so they realize in this moment that the only way we're going to get to Jesus, and, and can you imagine this conversation for just a second? Right? Because I, I know my personality type. Not everyone in here is my personality type. Thank the Lord. Um, but they're carrying this man. And, and who knows how long they've been carrying this, this paralyzed man, just, just that dead weight as it were. And they, Jesus is there. He's going to heal him. Jesus, all right, let's go. Let's, let's put him on this, this, this cot. Let, let's take him. Let's go. And they go and they get there. And the crowds is like, oh, man, we'll never. And so I'm thinking, well, let's come back tomorrow. Maybe let's leave a little bit earlier. You know, I, I'm not really trying. I don't like crowds like the fairs coming up. I'll be there, but you won't see me like just genuinely smiling the whole time. Ooh, crowds. Let's brush shoulders with people. You know, it's not my thing. Um, and so I said, let's, let's go. But these guys don't know Jesus is here now. We need him. And so what are they, hey, why don't we, well, we could just, you know, everybody move and see if that works. Or we, you know, and, and when that doesn't because no one is that tall or, you know, like they, they I, I have an idea. We could just carry him on the roof. How? Right? So they work through how. Like, oh, we're going to get them up on the roof. And they get them up on the roof. And so the, the roofs were flat and they were thick. And so it wasn't like, okay, we'll just get them up there and we'll jump a couple times. And we'll just kind of land down like it's not going to get any worse. Let's, Jesus will heal all of us if, if we break our legs. Like it's, it wasn't, so they had to cut through the roof. You know, and at this point I'm thinking, this isn't my roof. <laughs> right? Like, what would I do if I'm... You know, watching Sports Center or something, and all of a sudden, just like a machete just comes through the roof, like, you know, and, and I'm also thinking, like, aren't people going to start to hear this? Like, they're going to, again, it would draw so much attention and it's so inconvenient, but they did. They cut through the roof and they dropped, they, they lowered this man down. And so Jesus is teaching, and now all of a sudden, he, he's not teaching anymore, right? If, if all of a sudden someone started coming through the roof and they were lowering a man down, like, all of a sudden, it wouldn't really matter what I was saying at the time. Everyone would be looking at that man. And so everyone is. And so here they are, and they come, and, and Jesus sees their faith. Right? It doesn't say his faith. It doesn't just say the faith of the paralytic. It says their faith. The faith of all these people involved. He sees their faith. Their faith in action. 
right? So the faith of the crowd is, yeah, we're here, we're around, we're looking. But but the faith of these guys is, we're going to get to you. Whatever it takes. It's kind of like what James says, right? You, You say you have faith, well, I'll show you my faith by my works, by my actions. He's not saying works save you, but he is saying unless there are works that demonstrate your faith, your faith is just noise. If you're not seeking after Jesus, you can say whatever you want about who you believe. Oh, I believe in the gospel. I believe in the power of Jesus. Are you seeking him? Are you looking for him to change you, to heal you? These men did. They had faith. And so Jesus says to them, son, your sins are forgiven. Right? And at that point, like whatever music is playing in the background, just just stops. Right? And everybody's like, did he just say that, like what he was supposed to say is you're healed, but he said your sins are forgiven, and the scribes now, they have a problem with this. Why do they have a problem with this? Because they believe the word of God. Because they know that no one can forgive sins except for God. And at the same time, their hearts have been darkened to the word of God. Because if they knew the teachings that Jesus was teaching, and if they knew the works that he had been doing, and if they believed the scriptures rightly, they would have said, well, it makes perfect sense that this man is forgiving sins. But they don't. They're murmuring amongst themselves. They're saying, Who's this, who, who does this guy think he is? Right? Can you imagine that? You're at a convention and pick whoever your, your favorite author or your favorite Christian writer is and, and he's speaking and somebody comes up and says, you know, I've had back pain and he says, your sins are forgiven, right? In that moment, you're kind of like, ah, sorry, John Piper, you're not, you, no, you can't do that, right? Like, or if I was up here and it's just like, hey, your sins are forgiven. You know, immediately, like, there would be an elder who would just jump out of somewhere and tackle me, strip me of the mic, toss me out of the church, right? Because people don't forgive sins. Only God does. But they were so caught in their religious knowledge, in their, in their studies, in their religiosity, in their faithful obedience that they had turned to legalism, in their ability to save themselves through their knowledge and through their obedience, that they missed that this was Jesus. And so Jesus, and I love this, Jesus perceives their hearts. Right? And, and at the end of John chapter 2, after the wedding at Cana when he turns water to wine, John says that Jesus knows what's in a man. He knows what the heart of the person is. And so he doesn't need to hear their murmuring. He doesn't need to, are there any questions about what just happened? Right? Well, I don't think you, isn't that blasphemy? You know, like he doesn't need that. He knows their hearts and he says, look, why? Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Now, this is a hard question. Because in one sense, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. I can say anything. <laughs> I can say that to anyone. Hey, Craig, your sins are forgiven. You know, and see, I forgive the sins. There's no way to, to verify that. But, but if I say, hey, you're healed, 
immediately, especially if it's a paralyzed man, if they don't get up and walk, all of a sudden you're discredited. So in one sense, hey, it's very much easier to say your sins are forgiven, but Jesus knows that it's a much harder thing that he will do in forgiving sins than to heal this paralytic. And nonetheless, he does it, and immediately we begin to see the road to the cross with Jesus. What is it going to take for Jesus to forgive sins? Look, he can just speak and heal this man, but what is it going to take for him to forgive sins? It's the cross. So he does. And the people respond when he gets up. So what happens here? One other thing, and then we'll we'll quickly look at the next two stories. One other thing happens here. Jesus says to them, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I'm going to heal this man, the Son of Man there. Like Jesus was very careful in the words that he chose. Um, If you know much about um, church history or even a little bit about the the Reformation, um, you, you know uh, about Martin Luther and that he nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. And, and that, that was kind of the, you know, you hear it and it's this legendary story, right? Like Martin Luther with like rippling muscles and tattered garments, like carry these 95 theses, like drop kicking papists and like nailed it to the door. And, and, and people were looking around and, and just wind was blowing in his hair and everybody was looking up and the Reformation has come, you know, and, ah, and everybody's cheering. It's not like that at all. In fact, I mean, he wrote it in Latin. That's significant because the common people couldn't read Latin. Only the educated people could. So only, only the priests, only the other professors, scholars could read it. He was talking to them. Somebody else got it, translated it, printed it out in mass, sent it out. But for Martin Luther, he wasn't trying to get everyone involved with this. He wanted to have specific debate with specific people about how indulgences and how Papal authority was disintegrating the church, as it were, was detrimental to the church. All right, and so I say that because Jesus says, Son of Man. Now, if Jesus had said, so that you see that the Messiah or the Christ has power to forgive sins, everyone would have known exactly what he was talking about. But he didn't say that. He said, Son of Man. And so if you know the Son of Man, that is a messianic term. It's from Daniel 7, and you can go look. In fact, in home groups, you will look. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision, and there's the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, and he has all power, all authority, and then he looks to the Son of Man, and he gives the Son of Man all of his authority. So the Son of Man has the power of Yahweh himself. The Son of Man is the Messiah with all of heaven's authority, so that includes the authority to heal, and it includes the authority to forgive sins, and the scribes would have known the term Son of Man. So he's talking to them. He's talking to the religious people, and he's saying, look, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority from Yahweh himself, from God himself going to do this. So he engages with them. But as he does this, he heals, and how does everybody respond? They're amazed and glorify God, saying, we never saw anything like this before. Listen, when Jesus moves in a group of people, when Jesus moves, those who have 
those who are new to the faith, those who don't know Jesus, that's the response. We've never seen anything like this before. As a church, are we, are we living in such a way, are we modeling the work of Jesus in such a way that as people look at us from the outside or, or as they come into the inside, they say, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen reconciliation like this before. We've never seen caring for each other's needs like this before. We've never seen a group of people so comfortable with their faults and with their brokenness because they are so confident in, in the Savior. We've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen Jesus working like this. And they amaze, they, they marvel, they, they wonder, and they worship. So then the next story. Jesus is walking along the sea, and here's Levi, Matthew. It's not uncommon to have multiple names then. Levi, who is Matthew, the disciple who wrote the book, the gospel, according to Matthew, that's him. He's collecting taxes in a booth. And so really quickly, just for you to know, the Romans collected at least three or four different types of taxes. Um, some of them were just flat tax, 10% of everything you make. Some of them were um, sort of census taxes, so for every person in your family. And then some of them were, uh, <clears throat> were the equivalent of, of maybe like trade taxes, and this would be one of them, sort of like duty. Um, and so the, these these. These booths were set up, and tax collectors, uh, essentially what they would do is like a, a conglomerate, a, a group of tax collectors would pay Rome for the right to collect taxes, right? And so Rome made out well because they would just get the money up front. They didn't have to worry about shady individuals. And so a group of people would say, hey, we'd like to collect taxes for you. We're willing to bet, bid, just use our, our, we're willing to bid a million dollars to collect all your taxes, Right? And so then they, they, Rome would say, cool, we'll take your million straight up front. Then you go collect the taxes. They would obviously want to make money. So if they're going to make money, they would say, all right, well, we paid a million. Let's make three. Right? But then they'd hire people to go collect these taxes. And they'd say, well, you know, if I'm supposed to charge you $50, well, I have to make a living as well. So I'm going to charge you $100. There's no laws against that. And so they would do that. And they had pretty much all the power in the world to do it because no one kept, there were no checks and balances about it. And so tax collectors were hated people. You know that, but perhaps you don't know how hated they were. So, for example, um, they're Pharisees, Sadducees. They were liberal and conservative sides of Judaism. And just like here, there's not much that they agreed on. But one thing that they both agreed on was that it was not a sin to lie to a tax collector. Tax collectors would have to work with the Gentiles. They, that was just a part of what they would do. And because they spent so much time with the tax collectors, many of them were not allowed in the synagogue, the temples. They, they, weren't, they were considered unclean. Your house was unclean if you invited a tax collector into it. So this is more than just these people aren't liked. These people are sinners. Tax collectors and prostitutes. And we'd be like, oh, look, IRS folks aren't that bad. They were considered that way then. Right? They were unclean and they were sinners. So Jesus is walking along. And now, now this is great to me because his first two disciples, her first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they were fishermen here. And so now he's walking along and this is just... Um, this is just me sort of filling in storyline because I like drama. Who doesn't like drama? Um, 
And I always just imagine that, hey, Levi's booth is right there at the edge of the sea. And what if the thing that he taxes is your catch? What if it's actually a matter that Peter, Andrew, James, and John knew who Levi was because they had been cheated by him several times? Look, that's all speculation. It doesn't matter, except that Jesus does something completely unbelievable. And he says to this tax collector, without any sort of provocation, without any, hey, come, follow me. You follow me. And so he does. He says to the tax collector, be my disciple. And then, then he goes and he eats with them. And, and, and not only does he eat with them, this is so, it's verse 15, he reclined at table with them. You see, because, because when Jews would get together, they would eat. And they would eat around a table, sitting up, right? They would eat together. That's, that was their customary thing. But when the Romans, when the Gentiles would do it, in that region, they reclined at table, which means that the table was flat on the ground and they sat at the table. So not only now is he eating with unclean people, he's doing it according to customs that are not Jewish. Right? And so the scribes and the Pharisees see him. They're like, they're saying to the disciple, you're... Do you know who, who the guy you're following is, is eating with? Jesus again perceives their hearts. What does he say to them? Look, it's not those who are well that need a physician. You don't go to the doctor when everything's okay. When your bone's broken, you go to get it set. When you have the flu, you go to the doctor. You're sick, you know it, there's no way around it. Those are the people who go to the doctor. And Jesus says, those are the people who I'm here to see. If you don't know you're sick, I can't do anything for you. But tax collectors knew they were sick. They couldn't go worship with the people. They were dubbed unclean. They were hated. And so he goes to Levi's house, and not only is Levi there, but all of Levi's friends are there. And those are the people who Jesus chose to associate with. This is new. Pharisees would not have done that. No religious leaders would have done that. And they're confused and they say, why does Jesus do this? What's the Pharisees' problem? It's exactly what Jesus said, that they don't realize that they're sick. It's not, it's not that they're healthy. It's not that they're whole. It's that they don't realize that they're sick. And so they, can, they judge those who are sick. And so now we, we see this. We know the Pharisees. We've been taught about the Pharisees. And so you hear this. Okay, here's how you apply this. What if you were walking by that housing road? And, and I don't know if any of you um, have, have had this experience. Uh, we've had at least two locations where we've lived in that were in visible proximity to drug houses. Right, and you just know the people, like everyone's walking in and out. Like you don't know who lives there, but you know everyone's going in there. Like you, you just know, and then you talk to the pl- police know. It's a drug house. You kind of, so now you begin to see the same folks walking in and out, walking in and out. And so you're walking with your children along the street, and you come by that house, and, and the door opens. And, and of course, the, the typical thing, and you see Jesus. How do you respond? So we would all say, yeah, of course, Jesus is in there. That's what Jesus is supposed to be. I'm not sure that that's the best test. What if you walked by that house and you were just walking and the door opened, somebody was coming out. It was Burt Wallace, Pastor Brad, staff member. I know what goes on in that house. Not only are they walking out, as they walk out, they hug one person, they shake hands with another. 
They're laughing. They leave. They don't see you, but you see them. See, are you scandalized? Is your first thought emergency elder meeting? Are you thinking, what in the world is he even doing in there? Maybe you're not going that far. Maybe, you know, you're not saying, all right, well, let's stop, stop the presses. But maybe you're just wondering, like, you, your, your heart is concerned. Do you do the Christian thing, the spiritual thing? Hey, Brad, I just wanted to talk to you for a little bit. My heart is concerned. But you're there, right, with those people. All right. See, Jesus is setting, he's preparing a table, right? He's sitting around table. He's reclining at table with sinners and with people. So in some ways, we are setting the table. We're inviting people to the table. What happens when the people that Jesus hung out with become a large percentage of our community? Are we going to move our church to another community? Are you going to start going to a safer, cleaner church? Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick, which means he's not sending us to the healthy. He's sending us to the sick. Last story. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples are fasting. This is what they do. This is a part of basic piety. Before you think, whoa, these guys are off the chain, spiritual just know this is what you did. You fasted. There were at least four regular fasts a year. And if you were a Pharisee, you fasted twice a week. You just did it. And that was basic level piety. So for us, we would say like, oh, quiet time. Right? They fasted in obedience to Jesus. Or in obedience to, to the scriptures and to God. Sorry. Um, big distinction. Uh, and, and so... Then Jesus comes, and, and he's with his disciples, and they're not fasting, they're feasting. Jesus is always at a meal. I love that. I love that. I will gladly follow Jesus if a meal is involved. <laughs> uh, but we know that culturally, and that hasn't changed, you want to get to know someone, invite him for a meal. You want to have a good conversation, let there be, be food and drink, and Jesus is there, and, and that's what he does, and they're they're feasting. And so now the pious Pharisees say, well, why aren't your disciples fasting? Why aren't they doing a basic level obedience, discipline? And Jesus says to them, look, while the bridegroom is here, why would you fast? Jesus says, look, this is a wedding that's coming. God's going to marry his people. The bridegroom is here. Why would they fast? Why would you mourn when the thing that you're waiting for is here? Why do we fast? We fast for many reasons. Like there are a lot of reasons we might fast. But in essence, when we fast, we're saying two things. I need you more than food and I want you more than food. So if the thing that you need and want more than anything is with you, why fast? He's there. And so Jesus says, no, they're not going to fast. They have it right. You've missed it. And then he says something weird. He says, look, if you put old patches on 
if you put new patches on old garments, it's going to tear the garment even more and it's going to fall off. Why? Because the old garment is fully stretched and the new garment will, or it's fully shrunken and the new garment will shrink and it will rip the old garment. Or if you put new wine and old wine skins, what's going to happen? It's going to burst. Why? Because new wine, we do, I don't know if any of you like make wine, but we, we don't typically have to do that, right? It's already done for us. But in the process of making wine, in that fermenting process, it expands. And so if you put it in a, an old wine skin, which again, we don't have wine skins, but if you do that, what's gonna, it's going to burst. You're going to waste all the new wine. So you put it in new wineskins that will stretch and that haven't been worn and that haven't been logged by the, the, the wine that's in it because it has room to stretch and to grow and to, 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 to mature. That, what, is, what does that have to do with fasting? Has this, the promise of the, the Old Covenant is new life. You can't have new life doing things the old way. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not a patch. You can't put a little Jesus, a little religion on some part of your life and think it's going to be okay. I'm, I'm, I'm new wine, which means you need to be made new. And fortunately, Jesus has come to make you new. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. What Jesus is saying is this. There, there are two ways to go about salvation in life. There's religion and there's Christianity. There's following me. And religion, the things you do, the amount of knowledge you acquire, um, that's your hope, that's your salvation. You're your only hope. And what happens, if you're your only hope and you work your way to God, then then. There's a measure of pride that has to build up in you because you have to keep going. You have to pull yourself up. Religion says that God is on a holy hill, just like Christianity says, but the only difference is you have to crawl and claw your way up that hill. And so what happens is if you're crawling up a mountain and God comes down that mountain next to you, you're not going to see him because you know if at any point your fingers slip, you will fall to your peril. So what are you focused on? Your work, your ability, your problems, your fears, yourself. And you miss Jesus. Religious people miss Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes, they missed Jesus because they thought they were their only hope. Because they thought they kept on doing what they were doing, they'd be okay. Whereas Christianity says you cannot climb that mountain. It's unscalable. But you don't have to because God did come down that mountain. You can't save yourself. Jesus alone can save you. And so when you know that, when you, re- when you assess yourself properly, what you find is that you're desperate for a new hope. For a new way. Jesus. You're desperate for Jesus. And you will cut through roofs. You will sit with whoever you need to sit with. Whomever. You will feast and you will fast as is appropriate. Right, Jesus? We're waiting for his return. So it's appropriate to fast. This is not an anti-fasting 
sermon by Jesus because he says, look, there's going to come a time when he's taken away and they will fast. So we should fast. You ought to fast. It is a spiritual discipline. Jesus says, when you fast, don't fast like the Pharisees. Not if you decide, okay, I'm going to fast. That's not the point. The point is what is the object of your fast? Are you fasting as an end to itself, in, in and of itself? If I fast, I will be pure and holy. Or are you fasting because you want Jesus? So how do these tie together? It's just this. You have to seek Jesus. You have to want and, and search for Jesus. Okay, and so, so the question is, how do I know if I've sought after and wrestled with and, 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 and experienced what Jesus is doing and heard what Jesus is saying? And, and here's how you know that you've at least done that. Um, is that there, there are one of two responses that happen in your heart. Either you are like the scribes and the Pharisees and you say no. You reject skepticism, anger, fear. Or, or you're like the rest who are amazed and worship. That word amazed, it's the word that we, the, we it's ecstasy, a state, an ecstatic state. It's a losing of yourself. All of a sudden, you've seen Jesus, and if you remember that, you see Jesus, you, you've met him for the first time, you've experienced the grace of Jesus in your life, and all of a sudden, it's, it's new. Everything is wonderful and new, and you're amazed. Tim Keller says it this way, like one way that you can know, if, you, if you're a Christian, if you understand the gospel, if you've gotten it, when people ask you, am I a Christian? You don't say, well, of course I'm a Christian. Why wouldn't I be a Christian? But when someone says, you're a Christian, you say, I don't know how, but God loved me and he saved me. He saved me. There's wonder, there's new life, there's amazement, and there's worship. Those are the only two reasonable responses to viewing and seeing Jesus. There's no Jesus is cool, I can be a part of the crowd. There's no Jesus is a good guy, good teacher. He's pretty all right, right? There's none of that. Because either he's a crazy man who's lying and saying he's God, or he's the Savior of the world, and he's your Lord. So everything becomes new, because you have a new hope and a new Savior. So we give out of that. We, we respond to that in worship. And one of the ways that we worship is by giving to those in need, and we give them something new. Look, handouts are not something new. You can get that from anyone. But foretaste of a kingdom coming, that's new. Foreshadowing of the grace of God, that's new. We can participate in something new right here in a moment. So let's pray together and let's, let's do that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and lift your face toward him. And may you go in peace. Amen.